Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Innest, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Emma Ray, the author of The Child in Video Games, From the Meek to the Mighty to the Monstrous. The publisher is Palegrave Macmillan. Before we jump right in, though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or the audio platform of your very choice. You're more than welcome to leave feedback or questions on Spotify too. Also, please feel free to share this episode with your friends or wherever you see fit. And now back to the show. Drawing across game studies, childhood studies, and children's literature studies, this book redirects critical conversations away from questions of whether video games are good or bad for child players and towards questions of how video games produce childhood as a set of social roles and rules in contemporary Western contexts. And I'm pretty sure we learn so much more about this day, this topic today. Welcome, Emma, to the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. My name is Emma Ray. I'm a senior lecturer in emerging media at the University of Southampton, which is a lot of words to say that I teach on the game design undergraduate course and I do video game research. Great. Now, of course, as the tradition is, we have to check for your Ludo street credibility. Um, I think that's not even an English word, but it's a German invention. <laughs> so please tell us what's your favorite game and the one or even the ones you're playing right now. Right now, I'm playing Baldur's Gate 3. Um, I've already racked up, I think, more than 180 hours in doing a single player playthrough, but I'm currently replaying it with my partner, Couch Co-op. I'm a Githyanki Paladin, he's an elf monk, and we're having a wonderful time. Mm. Um, I don't have a favorite game, but I would hate to disappoint you and the listeners. Um, so instead, I wanted to offer you um, what I believe is the platonic ideal of a perfect video game. Um, oh. And that is Hades by Supergiant. Um, I think 
it's a prime example of what we might call ludonarrative consonance, um, as in the opposite of Clint Hawking's idea of ludonarrative dissonance, mm. because the story and the writing and the kind of dynamic ensemble cast and, and the voice acting and everything, they sit on one side of the golden scales of game design, perfectly balancing the hack and slashy dungeon crawlery roguelike gameplay. Um, and I think it's just done, it's just executed so perfectly. Also, it was my comfort game during the pandemic. So I think I have maybe some sort of sentimental feelings around that as well. Um, but yeah, I, I just, when I'm teaching, I often, you know, try to reach for examples of where a game has, you know, done a great job of managing risk and strategy or, or something like that. And I often reach for Hades as my paradigmatic example of great game design um so yes it's not my favorite game of all time but i do think it deserves um a lot of critical acclaim and praise thank you very much that's the that's the first on the show right so thank you very much so uh circling back to your book now um maybe mm, let's start here can you elaborate on how the book shifts the focus of critical conversations about video games and childhood from the, as I said before, from the traditional good or bad debate to an exploration of how video games construct childhood as a set of social roles and rules. And this is also very interesting, of course, for uh, German listeners, because this is a huge debate. Mm. Yes. So basically, in in the 80s, 90s and 2000s, um, there was a body of research published that responded to um, or pandered to, maybe if I'm feeling a bit less generous, the contemporary moral panic about the connection between children and gaming. Uh, and there are a lot of empirical studies um, coming out of psychology, behavioral science and sociology and so on that attempted to prove a causal link between childhood gaming and antisocial behavior or attention deficit disorders or childhood obesity or vision problems or lower levels of traditional literacy and and so on and so forth so you can basically insert any social emotional or physical ailment into the latter half of that formula and you'll probably get the title of a research paper published around that time um and then in response there were researchers from education studies and children's media studies um, and also uh, a lot of librarians actually they published their own empirical studies that attempted to prove a correlation between children's gaming and positive effects, such as improved hand-eye coordination or better spatial reasoning or pro-social skills like teamwork skills and so on, um, or you know, fostering a new love of long division, those types of things. Um, and of course, it makes sense that the video game defenders would want to respond to the video game detractors by speaking their same language by using their same tools of inquiry. Um, but to me, defending children's access to video games because of the possible sort of extrinsic benefits um, is a bit like saying, oh, children should read, you know, Tolstoy's War and Peace because that is one heavy tome and carrying it around in their school backpacks all day will quantitatively improve their muscle mass. Um, so <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, um, I suppose, in a nutshell, I don't think 
the question, are video games good or bad for child players? I don't think it's a very good research question, um, not least because it is sort of polarizing um, and antagonistic and binary in nature, but also because it belongs to a long lineage of research questions that can essentially be summarized as, is, insert new communication technology, good or bad for, insert, oppressed social demographic? So is rock music bad for teenagers of a conscriptable age? Are novels bad for women? Is the printing press bad for the laity? And so on. Um, and these kinds of research questions, you know, from our current historical vantage point, they they look sort of reactionary and conservative. And, um, and more importantly, they seem to be symptomatic of, um, or they seem to sort of precipitate a significant shift in social power dynamics in relation to the position of that marginalized demographic, whether that's teenagers suddenly becoming, you know, really important market demographic in the age of consumerism or whether, yeah, it's women's rights or whatever it is. Um, and yeah, so for me, what is clearly more interesting and also perhaps more answerable than, you know, is the printing press good or bad for the laity? Does the, does having direct access to the word of God in one's mother tongue enhance or diminish your relationship with the supreme deity, which is a really fun, you know, question to throw around, but quite, quite difficult to kind of prove empirically. Um, yeah, so what I think is more interesting is the sort of meta question, which is why did this technological innovation trigger a moral panic? What was at stake here in this specific, you know, spatio-historical moment? Um, and so, yes, in the case of children and video games, my sort of meta questions are why why children um what kind of shift in social power are we about to see in what ways are video games you know interfering with age-based norms um and with the kind of status quo based around power distribution along age age-based lines um what happens if the relationship between age and social power gets reconfigured those are kind of Yes, those are the questions that I think will stand the test of time. I think, you know, and again, we can sort of speculate about the answers to those questions. But I think in the future, if we look back, that's where that's going to be a sort of more rich, more fertile, more interesting space to do research in than are video games good or bad for kids, essentially. Yeah, yeah. The book uh, mentions cataloging and critiquing representations of childhood in over... 500 wow contemporary video games 500 listeners that's a that's a that's a five and two zeros <laughs> what were some key findings of uh, or patterns that emerged from this extensive exploration and how do these representations contribute to our understanding of childhood in uh, western contexts Thank you for your your um, expressions of awe there, because it was actually it was such a little over 500 um, titles, and it did take me nine months and a lot of Excel spreadsheets to to manage that um, as a corpus. So yeah, I appreciate I appreciate the the sounds of wonder. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I did I built I built this corpus of just over 500 um, commercially successful slash critically acclaimed video games um, published over a 10 year period between 2009 and 2019. Um, and I started with with what I thought was like a pretty simple question, which was, does this game contain any child characters? Um, and I think, yeah, from that starting point, the kind of first 
interesting key finding um, was that a really significant proportion of contemporary video games do not feature any child characters. So, so even when I controlled the games that had no human or no sort of humanoid characters, apologize, I'll say that again because that's probably gonna ruin the audio recording. Um, even when I controlled the games that had no human or humanoid characters, um, over a third of the game worlds remaining were entirely child-free zones. And this is kind of striking when you consider the fact the video games are often dismissed as being children's media, as being, you know, appropriate for young audiences, as being something that you should be shamed for enjoying in adulthood. Um, because, yeah, other children's media, children's literature, children's films, children's television and so on, they heavily feature child characters and video games just don't. They just do not have child characters in, in so many game worlds. So that I thought was was interesting. Um, the second key finding was um, that when child characters did appear in video games, they were often in these secondary supporting roles. So either just as set dressing, you know, for example, when you you go to a village in an open world RPG, there might be some kids running around in the background, kind of signaling to the player that they're now entering um, a sort of safe combat free zone. Um, but those children are not... They're, they're a bit more like, um, you know, sentient props or like environmental objects, moving objects um, in the background than they are like individualized characters. Um, on the other hand, sometimes these, these supporting characters, you know, are really significant. They do have an impact on the gameplay. They do change the atmosphere, the tone of the game. Um, and they also, yeah, they have names and backstories and, um, you know, personalities. So characters such as Atreus in God of War, the, the 2018 God of War, or Ellie in the first Last of Us game, um, or Alice in Detroit Become Human. Those are probably pretty well-known sort of child sidekick characters who whose presence has a real felt tangible impact on what the overall playing experience of those games is like. Um, again, they're not protagonists, but they're sort of deuteragonists um, who, who matter. Um, and again, I've talk about this a lot in the book but what I find really interesting is how those characters serve to police um, and kind of discipline the player and the play styles that are acceptable they they shift um, the player's priorities in such a way that they actually encourage quite a different play style to the kind of standard competitive mastery skills based I just want to win at all costs kind of kind of approach to a game so that was interesting um, and then I think the third sort of key finding, which is maybe not very surprising to anyone who's ever done or read a content analysis of characters in video games, but um, yeah, when I when I coded for race and gender, um, I also found that non-white, non-male children were disproportionately underrepresented, which is just it just tracks with um, content analysis that that look at adult characters as well. Um, and again, it, it has all the same sort of moral and social implications that the erasure of non-white, non-male adults characters in games has, um, but with the added downside that non-white children are often, in, in real life this is, are often denied the legal and community protections that are conferred by default onto white children. Um, and so, yeah, the conflation of whiteness and childhood and innocence and so on is 
reflected in the in the death of black and brown kids in video games and again of course there are amazing exceptions um like clementine in in the first walking dead um or daniel in in life is strange too and those characters are really really important but what I think is interesting about doing like a big data study like this is like the numbers don't lie. Like, yes, we can point to these important counterexamples or counterpoints, but when I present you with a pie chart or with whatever, you know, graph of your choice um, that shows, I mean, for, for example, you are more likely to encounter um, an, a kind of anthropomorphized animal child or a or an, a, a sort of animate object, like a talking spoon, for example, than you are to encounter a non-white, non-male, non-male child in a video game. And those are the kind of statistical things that really throw into sort of sharp, um, sharp relief what what we're actually dealing with. Um, so I think again, I don't know, a bonus finding maybe that ministers might be interested in is. Uh, how many dead children there are in contemporary video games. Um, so of my uh, 60 significant na- named child non-player characters, um, 27 of, of those 60 child characters die violently, um, mostly by being murdered. Um, so I don't know, again, because the player's behavior towards child characters is so heavily constrained, you're not allowed to kill children in, in video games. Um, However, NPC antagonists are basically given free reign to kill any any kid, any cute kid um, in a video game you shouldn't get too attached to because there's a very high chance, almost 50% chance that they're going to get murdered (laughs) by um, an NPC antagonist. Oh, oh, oh. so, all right. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Please tell me, Emma, um, how does the the intersection, the aforementioned intersection of of game studies and childhood studies and also uh, children's literature studies enhance our understanding of the role of video games um, in shaping perception, perception, sorry, perceptions of childhood uh, in general. Are there specific examples from, from your book that highlight this interdisciplinary approach? Yeah, so children's literature studies in particular um, 
it has the necessary theoretical apparatus that's needed to unpack representations of children in childhood. Um, and again, that's because outside of children's extra studies, childhood studies, age studies, and so on, um, there isn't a lot of attention paid to the fact that age is socially constructed as much as it is a kind of you know lived biological reality. Um, so we need children's literature studies and childhood studies to remind us that there is no such thing as a kind of a historical, universal, transcultural, um, quote unquote, natural child that 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 isn't. You know, and I think we're get we're a bit better at recognizing how things like race and gender and sexuality result from a combination of anatomical, biological, physiological um, components in conversation with cultural, social, political, legal um, norms, and that same logic seems to stop short when we when we think about age. Um, and childhood and youth um we we kind of we like to believe in a in a universal childhood basically and children's literature studies is really good at saying that's not correct <laughs> that's not true um and reminding us that age um is a political identity um and it even has sort of it has terminology for example atonormativity um is a kind of it's a word that's uh coined by children's literature scholars and it basically describes the assumption that adult experiences are the norm and that the experiences of children um, and also the elderly are somehow deviant. Um, and again, it's just, it's really useful to have that theoretical backing to understand that adulthood, you know, is tied up in ideas about capitalism and productivity um, and yeah, consumer power and th those types of things. So uh, that's why I think it's, it's good to include children's literature studies and childhood studies when we want to talk about representation in games more broadly. Um, but then reciprocally, it's like, well, what can children's literature studies and childhood studies gain from incorporating video games um, into their corpuses, into their corpora? Um, why should they, you know, expand their view beyond films, novels, television, advertising, political speeches, art policies, and so on, where, you know, they do, there's already a lot of work done on understanding how, um, you know, understanding what sort of ideological belief systems produce versions of childhood. Um, and I think, yeah, the reason why video games have something new, or, or maybe we can think of video games as being a sort of um, a whetstone against which they can sharpen existing theoretical approaches. Um, it's firstly because games are rule-based media. So you can work backwards from the audiovisual representations of childhood in games to understand in a really literal, explicit way, what are the rules that govern childhood? What are the coded scripts that set parameters for what is and isn't childlike behavior? And the fact that they're so concrete, you know, that they are literally hard-coded, um, I think can provide a really good kind of pushing off point for talking about the fact that childhood is, is socially constructed. Um, so I think there's, there's definitely something there. And then secondly, video games are, are interactive media, obviously. Um, and through reward and punishment, through win states and fail states, through, yeah, certain orientations, certain skills, certain behaviors um, that get kind of choreographed and condoned and, listed by games um we can 
we can really see that age is a, is a disciplinary tool. We can see that age is a regulatory tool. Um, and again, that helps us to think about it as 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 a political thing rather than just thinking about as something that's natural um and sort of apolitical um and equally video games are, are playful media as well so even as they tell you these are the rules these are you know the coded boundaries um there's always that kind of subversive invitation to play against the grain of those encoder structures and actually to um sort of strategically experiment with what it is what it what would it mean to um, yeah, transgress age-based um, separations, segregations, and, and so on. So um, I'm thinking of things like the fallout mods, which allow you to shoot children in the face. I'm not saying, I'm not condoning those mods, obviously, but I think it is interesting that we have, on the one hand, this rule, children are invincible, um, children cannot and should not be harmed under any circumstance. And then we have a player base responding in a way that we can really read as, as why not? Why shouldn't I? Um, so, so yeah, so I think like, I think Christopher T. Um, Nguyen, he, he has this uh, recent book about video games and agency. And he basically describes video games as libraries of agencies. Um, and because, yeah, because the identities of adult and child are basically contingent on our collective definitions of agency, ability, competence, responsibility, autonomy, and so on. And I think if we think about video games as libraries of agencies, we can actually think about how they give us these, these possibility spaces to try on different types of agency so that we can think a bit more flexibly about how the kind of changing roles and rights and rules and prohibitions that are conditionally doled out and rescinded along the timelines of our lives are somewhat arbitrary and are open for interrogation. Um, yeah, so I think, long story short, ch childhood studies and children's literature studies should see video games as a really, really exciting arena in which definitions of childhood are being, are emerging and being challenged at the same time. Right. So... Thanks for these uh, insightful perspectives. Um, I think we have learned a lot today. But of course, there's always one last question. And this time it's, what are you working on right now? And of course, what will you be playing next? I am currently working on a lot of, um, a lot of research projects at the intersection of gaming and mental health um, with a particular look at death, dying, and bereavement, which sounds very heavy um, and also quite strange that I've gone from childhood to death so quickly. Um, but I, I've, yeah, I'm really finding it very exciting and interesting. And um, yeah, I'm actually presenting a paper at the Ethical Games Conference in January, which is organized by Sebastian Detterding, Celia Hodunt, and Fran Bloomberg. Um, so if you want to hear me talk about the ethical implications of designing therapeutic video games, then it's a free, it's a free, um, it's a free event. So anybody can can join, and it's online. So you can you can see me speak there. Um, otherwise, I have my actual book launch date now for this book for the Child in Video Games, which is the twenty fourth of January, and it's also completely free. It's online. Um, you can sign up via Eventbrite, and everybody is very welcome. You don't have to be a game studies academic or a child, children's literature academic to 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 join. Um, and encourage your students to come as well. That's That would also be really nice. Yes. Uh, and what am I playing next? Yeah. I uh, I'm still feel like I have a lot of, of 
I have a lot still to do in Baldur's Gate 3, but um, I really like, I, I love the studio Degu de Fabrique and they have a new game coming out called Salt Sea Chronicles, or I think it's actually already out now. Um, and I really loved Mutazioni, so I think I might put that on my my Steam wish list. Um, and then the other game that completely caught my attention just because I love a genre mashup is Stray Gods by Summerfall Studios because it's a role-playing game slash musical theater piece which sounds really intriguing so I'm looking forward to that too. Well great projects ahead. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. So Emma take care and goodbye. Thank you very much for having me. So, dear listeners, I hope you liked this episode. If you are an author and or an editor in the field of digital games studies yourself and want to talk about your latest publication, please do not hesitate to contact me under rudolf.inderst at googlemail.com. Alternatively, please send me a direct message on social media. You will find me under Rudolf Inderst almost everywhere. And again, please share this episode wherever you see fit. See you in a bit. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.